In our previous hour, I described story after story about the fact that not all Christians behave like Jesus. That's a big revelation, and that you might notice that of those examples I gave, most, if not all of them, were personal experiences. They weren't something I read out of a book or some statistical information. I didn't wish to offer a statistical information to back up my hypothesis because I wasn't presenting a hypothesis. I was telling you what I experienced in my interaction with certain Christians. And my purpose in that was in the hope that it might awaken us all to a godly self-examination of our own hearts before the Lord. The purpose was to help us repent where we need to in order to be effective for the kingdom of God in our generation. Uh, I know I come across sometimes pretty hard about this, not because I think I'm better than anybody, but because I know these things so well from personal experience. At the conference that we just finished, um, thankfully I have people on my team who are more stable and balanced than I am. And prophets need pastors. Pastors also need prophets. Uh, without pastors, prophets can get overly harsh and uh, dark. And without uh, prophets, pastors can get overly soft and uh, undiscerning. So we need each other. And one of the men on my team is certainly not soft and undiscerning. He's a, he's a warrior and he's a good friend. And after I spent the first opening session reiterating some of the very same things that I talked about to you on the uh, last nightlight message that precedes this one, he very pointedly and correctly reminded me that uh, not everybody in the body of Christ is guilty of this and that to malign the bride of Christ in the name of seeking to cleanse her and keep her on the right road uh, can can easily turn into a, another form of error. And he, he was right to say that, and I, I need to keep being reminded of that. Uh, a lot of our statistical information that pours into us from well-meaning researchers who are trying to, to sound the trumpet and keep us awake have actually uh, misrepresented some facts. I'm not going to be able to get into that in, de in too much detail here, but I, I just want to mention to you that uh, a lot of statistical information is, is erroneous. doesn't mean that we're not in trouble in some areas, but we are not in near as much trouble as some statisticians might have you believe. For instance, I'll give you one example, and I've been guilty of quoting this very statistic uh, because I didn't do my own homework. It always gets you in trouble when you don't do your own homework. But uh, the idea that 50% or even more, 50% uh, uh, or more of Christians are divorcing now, that statistic is not accurate. Later on, maybe I'll go into some detail as to how that in error, that inaccuracy got propagated. Uh, but I just want to put it in your mind. Uh, even if I can't prove it right now, just let me say it to you so it sticks in your mind. Because the fact is, that's the whole problem. You can say something without supporting it, and, and it gets stuck in our brain. So let me stick in your brain the fact that it is not true that over 50% of Christians are, are betraying their marriage covenant. 
And you see, in, a, in our attempt to sound the alarm about these things, we inadvertently become tools of the enemy because there's something that lodges in the, the crooks of our mind if we're in the midst of a difficult marriage that says, well, over half of my brothers and sisters can't keep their marriages together either, so maybe I'm, I'm not in bad company. Maybe I should just give it up. How different would it be if the word was, you know, most Christians stay faithful to their commitment. What's going on with you? Now, I'm not trying to bring anybody under condemnation. I know some marriages are so broken that they can't be uh, repaired. I know that. I deal with it. Uh, in other people, obviously. I'm not saying I deal with it in my own life, for heaven's sakes. Uh, but I deal with it in, in the lives of, of other people, and I see it. Those rare occasions where it's just such a mess that you just have to cut the cord. But not nearly uh, as many divorces uh, come into that, that category as we would like to believe. And I believe the reason that it has increased in some circles is because of wrong statistical information. That's just one example. I'm not going to go off on the rightness or wrongness of statistics right now because I have a lot of other things I want to say about statistics. But anyway, um, I was telling you what I experienced in our last hour together and in, in my own interaction with people. I wasn't trying to give you numbers and stats. And the purpose was to help us awaken uh, to our calling. Speaking of statistics, you know, the following quote is attributed to Mark Twain, Benjamin Disraeli, Winston Churchill, and I quote it a lot, so maybe my name will get connected to it, but there are three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Did you know that 68% of all statistics are made up on the spot just to win an argument? <laughs> no, that's not true. That's just a made-up statistic right there that I, I plagiarized from one of the statisticians I've been studying. But I laughed and laughed when I read it because I, I mean, we're all—I guess not. We're all. That would be a, a wrong statistic. A lot of us who speak publicly are guilty of pulling stats out of the hat. It might be close to the truth because we read it somewhere, but even though we read it somewhere, doesn't mean it's accurate. Now, the reason I'm spending time with this, folks, is because we don't realize how much we are influenced by these concepts. And if you read some of the stuff that's out right now, and I'm, I may have been guilty of it too, you can be so discouraged by what seems like the the, the great rise in Islam, for instance, you know, the, hear all kinds of stats about how Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. Well, it's not, not by a long shot, uh, but if you include people who are put under the sword and told to convert, I guess you could say it's <laughs> growing pretty fast, but uh, it's, it's, it's the people of God. It's the, it's the, it's the Christian church that is growing faster than any other group on the planet, the real church. Um, so, you know, I just want to put some of these things in your head just so you'll have some positive things to think about. And you say, well, where's the stats on it? Uh, I'll, I may get to that. I may not. I may just let you wonder if it's true or not. But at least you can, you know, kind of chew on it like a, a positive uh, medicine for your mind that no. 50% of Christians are not divorcing, and yes, the body of Christ is growing faster than any other religion 
And of course, we're not a religion. We're a relationship. But anyway, when I was in college, if someone had given me a choice between doing a, stati a statistical analysis and having my teeth pulled slowly one by one by an inexperienced dental student with a nervous condition that caused his hands to shake badly, I would have been so torn between which one of those to pick that my head would have exploded, and then I wouldn't have had to have chose either one. But I'm only exaggerating about 12.1% about that. But at least the disintegration of my skull would have saved me from having to choose either torture but if perchance my head had stayed intact and I finally did have to choose between statistical information gathering and the dentist, I would probably choose the dentist. And most of you all know how much I hate going to the dentist. So it gives you kind of an idea of my attitude about this. I know it's unfair to those of you who are true statisticians who really like this kind of thing. I mean, thank God we're all different. You know, my mother-in-law loves putting puzzles together, and Mary kind of likes it. Now, to me, if you walked in my office and threw a brick through my, my window, and it shattered in 400,000 pieces— and then you told me to put those pieces back together, I would react to that about the same way I would putting a puzzle together. I said that to somebody a few days ago, and they said, well, I, I would love doing that. But I think it was Jerry, <laughs> Jerry Soviar said he, he said his wife, Mary Ann, would love to put stuff like that. I'm just glad we're all different. Glad we're different. Because I just shoot myself. Anyway. It's not that I doubt the validity of, of some statistical information. I, I'm sure it has uses and at times may even be a real asset in certain scientific endeavors. There's no doubt about that. But when it comes to matters of the soul and of how to relate to each other, to statistics seems more like a hodgepodge of assumptions based on questionable number crunching and in the hands of unscrupulous and misguided experts, so-called such stats, can be horribly misleading, as I've already pointed out. Yet on many occasions, I have used statistical information. I, I have to admit that I have fallen into the very trap that makes the use of statistics so treacherous. I use some startling statistical research report whenever I wanted to make my point, and I wanted it to stick in my audience's mind. Now, I'm not confessing this as some sinful thing. I didn't purposefully give false information. On the contrary, I was seeking trustworthy information from what I believed to be reliable researchers in order to support my conclusions. With all my seeming resistance to what I consider the reductionism that statistics represents, and it certainly it is, it is mass reductionism, still I felt the need to, quote, prove my point by the numbers. I think this is left over from a horribly traumatic brain injury I suffered in college called sociology class. My professor became upset when one day I stated in class that there was a direct and obvious relationship between pornography and sexual perversion. <laughs> His face reddened a bit because, of course, he was trying so hard to not express any judgmental attitude at all in order to maintain his own politically correct facade of scientific objectivity, even though you could see that he was ticked at my insistence that there's a direct 
cause-effect relationship between gawking at idols, pornography, and the inner twisting of the soul. And he driveled on in what was supposed to be an objective, non-judgmental way about how studies have shown over and over that there could be no declarative statement to support my view. I kept responding that I had plenty of numbers to support my view. Every single person I had ever ministered to who had been in porn was suffering inside from a twisting of their souls. It was one for one. My stat was 100%. (laughs) I don't remember how I got out of that class with my sanity intact. If I did, it was excruciating to sit there fiddling while Rome burned discussing number charts and arguing about non-correlating data and being ever so careful to offer every point of view as having validity, except mine, which included giving porn-supportive hypotheses equal time in the name of objectivity, opposing studies done by those for whom it is in their interests not to find that pornography wrecks people's souls. That was presented while souls were being wrecked all around me. I remember one of the ways I learned to endure that torture of sitting through that stuff was to imagine scenarios like the bombing of London. (laughs) I don't mean I was comforted by the thought of the bombing of London. I mean, I was just... uh, There was a statistical chance of not being hit with a bomb. It just didn't matter what that stat was if you or your loved ones were hit by the bomb. So I pictured in my mind, not the stats, but the real flesh and blood human beings for whom statistics mean nothing when the bomb hits. Now, it was ironic that the very thing we were most warned against in these classes was anecdotal examples of our point of view. Uh, placing anecdotal information on a level of, of statistical research. Uh, I know from repeated experience with the human soul that porn is destructive to it. And you know what? What's ironic is what I know from observable encounters with people was the only empirically trustworthy information offered on the subject. All their stats, all their studies, all the gobbledygook, number crunching and manipulation of information that they presented as scientific was bogus to the max. And my little, quote, anecdotal examples, which were 10 out of 10, 100 out of 100, uh, proved the point. Well, of course, that, of course, assumes that we agree on what the soul is and what the destruction of the soul is, and what pornography is. Bill Clinton would have aced this class. How my professor would have loved to spend days discussing with Clinton what the meaning of is is. It wasn't long before I escaped that booby hatch that tried to pass itself off as education, and I set out seeking to find and help the one. And that's what birthed this present ministry. Yet, I was infected enough in that class with the concept of supportive data that now and then, over the years, you've heard me referring to this or that study resulting in this or that statistic. And again, in certain scientific 
uh, uh, perimeters, that is a valid thing. I've not checked out many of these studies I've quoted to you, though. First, because I trusted my sources. And second, and most obviously the greatest of the two reasons, I, I would rather run at top speed face first into a jagged stone wall before I would do statistical research myself. I know there are good reasons to gather and use stats. I've already said that. So please don't write me about all the good reasons. I know them. I, I agree with them. But the shepherding of souls is not one of them. Now, in your previous newsletter, I offered a very short and incomplete review of a recent statistical project from the Barna Group called UnChristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. Now, I love George Barna as a man uh, I mean, I don't know him personally, but I, I, I believe he's a man of God. I, I believe his heart is set to serve the Lord and to sound the trumpet in Zion and to be a voice to my generation. And he's seeking to help keep us awake to the large issues that demand large responses. And yet, having said that, and I don't say this to be dishonorable to him. I mean, he's doing the best. I'm, I'm sure he's doing the best he can. But after years of studying some of his research, and, and of course when I say he is, he's got a whole team of people that do this. But after studying some of the more recent research especially, and then comparing what they say with what I find in my own personal experience with people, I've begun to reevaluate much of what I have just taken for granted. I found myself having that same instinctive reaction against some of their conclusions like I did in college. For instance, it's been a good 25 plus years since that college sociology course I just described, but listen to this statement from the text of UnChristian. Quote, Young people are significantly less likely than older adults to limit their media content uh, out of discomfort with the values or perspectives represented in that content. Consider this fact. A majority of those ages 42 uh, and younger say that the content of movies and television is a major... Oh, excuse me, I misquoted that. Consider this fact. A majority of those ages 42 and older say that the content of movies and TV is a major problem facing America. But that statistic drops to just one-third of those 18 to 41. So one-third of the people between 18 and 41 don't believe that any movies or television has any negative effect on the souls of men and women and children. Now back to the quote. Our initial research into this reality suggests a mix of two reasons. Number one, those between the ages of 18 and 42 don't care. They are not threatened by relativistic values. They don't care about rel relativistic values. They're not threatened by relativistic values. And then number two, they don't notice. They are not as likely to reject values that conflict with their own. For better or worse, few members of the generation under 40 have the mentality to avoid media that they deem offensive. 
Now, that's all kind of a fancy way of saying that, uh, well, let me just say it like this. I don't want to presume to put words in the author's mouth, but it seems that he's rebuking older, wiser folks who have learned better by experience as well as by spiritual maturity to obey the scriptures when it comes to not giving ourselves to demonic idols, which includes all kinds of things in movies and television and media. Now, the two reasons given for why these under 42 people seem to have no conscience about what they watch or listen to is because they are, quote, not threatened by relativistic values. This, of course, implies that those of us who do feel a strike in our conscience when we view various forms of fornication, or if we watch a head being slowly sawed off, or whatever it is, is because we evidently are not as mature as those who are not bothered by it, as the under 40 group, you know, therefore they, they feel, we're, we're not mature, so we feel threatened by these relativistic values. But these younger ones don't feel threatened. You, you follow what I'm saying? Now you gotta remember, this is, this is, these are Christian men who are writing this. They are good men. They are godly men. They are trying to help us discern how it is that we are not reaching our generation. By the way, even that concept is questionable, that we are not reaching our generation. That that needs to be examined, but I won't get into that right now. Um, but maybe we could say this whole thing another way. How about saying it like this? Those under the 42 uh, age group feel no threat of danger from taking in evil imagery because they have very little discernment. How about that? How is that statement not at least equally possible than the one I just quoted? Because, see, the one I just quoted makes those of us who are parents, those of us who are leaders, those of us who are pastors, feel like, well, I'm so sorry, man, golly gee, I didn't mean to impose truth on your on your self-deception. I mean, for heaven's sakes, I, I'll back away and let you... Suck in all the demonic excrement you'd like to. Anyway, then uh, the second reason offered for their lack of discretion, those under the age of 42, is that the under 40 group are not as likely to reject values that conflict with their own. That's the way the study said it. Now, let me try to get this straight. The under 40 superior in wisdom group that watches all sorts of evil do so because they are wiser than their elders who have lived longer and know more and they are more open to all sorts of various evils because even though they have values that are in opposition to what they are looking at and taking in, they evidently do not value those values enough to honor, guard, or express them in their choice making. Hmm. Now, that's exactly what sort of sophistry I clashed with in my old sociology course in college. We must be careful not to hold to any opinion too tightly. We must not be dogmatic. It's not loving to be too certain of anything. Love means having a mind so open that your brain falls out. Maybe the two reasons the under 40 generation will watch anything with no sense of inner responsibility to self, others, or God 
is not the two reasons given by the text in Unchristian. Maybe it is that rather than being unthreatened by relativism, they are relativistic. And maybe they are not likely to reject values not their own because they haven't got any core values. Maybe they're so much the product of an over-materialistic society and so bedazzled by a government mind-controlled school system and so hurt and disillusioned by a failed family life that they are passively floating down the Internet River Ganges, which carries every form of human activity imaginable as well as input from much that is not human so that they don't even know who they are or where they're floating or what their destination is. I received a letter from a pastor in California who is on the very cutting edge of ministry to this generation. He does not sit behind a varnished desk in a Christian safe house. He goes to the very heart of darkness in our culture and gives his life in loving and reaching and serving the most lost of the lost. He is only a few years my senior and we share many of the same memories of what it was like in the 60s and 70s the occultism, the sexual debauchery, the emotional agony of it all. We both know what it is to be snatched from the fire by the intervening grace of Almighty God in Jesus. Now he's a pastor and a friend and a a solid, trustworthy therapist and family counselor. So when he wrote me what he wrote me, my heart ached because I knew he was he was writing with wisdom and insight. He wasn't writing from some legalistic, condescending, self-righteous, uh, generational superiority, looking down his nose at ignorant young people. That's not what was motivating this letter. But I'm quoting the letter. He says, I see a lot of 20-somethings in my practice and ministry. I've lost clients because I spoke to them of sexual brokenness. Many of my clients don't even know that fornication is a sin. They don't see the importance of sexual boundaries and are convinced that all these rules about sexual boundaries are just religiosity brought in by an older generation of legalistic people lacking in grace and mercy that were judgmental. Now, these people, my friend describes, are not anti-Christians or non-believers. These are claiming to be Christians that are saying this. He goes on to say, quote, the interesting thing about these young people is that they are highly gifted and are quite familiar with the presence of God. Signs and wonders, healing, prophetic gifting, and so on. They are operating in these gifts in profound ways. They see the sick healed. and They move in prophecy with a startling degree of accuracy. But they are completely ignorant of the need for sexual boundaries and don't believe that sexual activity outside marriage, homosexuality, or masturbation-driven fantasy lives uh, is any big deal. Now, don't think for one minute my friend was excusing and affirming this. He was sounding the alarm. Now, uh, I know if you if you have any scriptural knowledge at all, two things come to mind here. The first one is, Jesus will say on the day of judgment to many who moved in all kinds of charismatic gifts, They will say, well, we cast out devils in your name and did many mighty works in your name. And he will say, depart from me, you practitioners of iniquity. I never knew you. So that comes to mind first. 
But, and I'll come back to this more uh, in a few minutes, let me offer something a little more comforting than that damning scenario. The Corinthians were, were, were total sexual addicted pagans. Uh, even in the pagan world, uh, you understand what I mean by the pagan world. The word pa- pagan does not mean anything derogatory. The pagan were, were, were people that lived off the land. That's all the word pagan means. It means that people of the earth, people who of the are of the earth and are not of heaven. I can't get into all that right now, but somehow, I, I, when some of this material I read, you know, they say when you make Christians make reference to pagans, it's derogatory. No, it's not derogatory. That's who they are. That's what they choose to be. I mean, it's getting to where you can't even call anybody anything without some kind of childish reaction to it. Obviously, I'm talking about referring to them in the context of uh, cultural definitions. I'm not talking about calling an individual a pagan. That might be, of course, derogatory or, or, or seem like you're condescending. But for me to refer to people as non-Christians and pagans is not derogatory, if you understand language. Anyway, the point is here, the Corinthians were pagans of the pagans. If you wanted to insult a pagan in the first century, call them a Corinthian. <laughs> it implied that you're a debauched pervert if you're a Corinthian. You know, you're Rome. Where are you going? Going on vacation. Where are you going? Corinth. Well, you per- you're just a pervert. That's the mindset. So in the Corinthian church, you have people of every kind of perverse background. They come to Christ. Paul is gentle and loving with them. He tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, you come behind in no gift while waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus. He says the charismatic gifts operate among you. And this is why he had to address charismatic issues in that letter, because they, they moved in them more than most churches, not, not that the other churches did not move in them, all the churches did. But the Corinthians moved them in, in, in them greatly. So Paul had to correct some of their wrong ideas. He doesn't address their sexual perversion until chapter 10. It takes him 10 chapters before he starts addressing the fact that fornication, which is idolatry, cost Israel uh, their entrance into the promised land and that many dead carcasses fell in the wilderness and God let them die in the wilderness and raised up their children in their place. So you don't have Paul overlooking their sin because they moved in gifts. Guess why they're called gifts? Well, they're called gifts because they're not yours. They're given to you by another. And a gift does not necessarily define either the character of the recipient or the recipient's relationship to the giver. So the gifts of God can be given, but that doesn't mean you have a relationship. So there will be those on the day of judgment who will appeal to their gifts as evidence that they belong to Jesus, and he will look at their relationship with him. And the relationship with him is manifested by obedience to him. Now, if you think obedience to Jesus is the same as works salvation, 
you're in such deception, I don't know where to begin. I, and I'm, I know my audience doesn't think like that, so forgive me. I'm not saying you to you. I'm just speaking in general terms. But, but on the other hand, think about this. Okay, now you got that with the Corinthians. But think about this, though. To the Galatians who were legalistic, puritanical, if I can use that word, and in in, in, it's not a good context to use it, but I hope you get the idea. They, they would never have allowed anything like what the Corinthians had gotten into, but they were legalists. They were trying to work out their salvation, not in relationship, but by the keeping of rules and regulations and coming under uh, the weight of uh, a misunderstanding of what it means to walk with Christ and keeping the law. Paul doesn't waste any time. He takes 10 chapters to rebuke the Corinthians. He affirms and blesses them in chapter 1. He didn't rebuke them about their immorality fully until chapter 10, though he mentions it in in uh, addressing the man in incest in chapter 5 and 6. But to the Galatians, it's like Paul cannot wait to get to the point. Chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. You foolish Galatians. How have you, how have you, how have you turned away from the grace of God and, and come back under legalism? So based on that, it seems that Paul is much more concerned about legalism than he is about brokenness in ignorant behavior in youthful believers. And I take comfort in that because that tells me that what we have here in this generation that I've just read the letter about is we have a lot of hurt kids. They have no boundaries. They have no sexual boundaries because their own parents did not keep their marriage covenant. Their, their family life is falling apart. One statistic that I do quote often and that I do believe is accurate, and I do, I believe it's accurate not because I read it as a statistic, but because I, I talk to kids. The, 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 the number one thing they want when, when they're questioned about what, what do you want most out of life? The number one answer is I want a family that stays together. I have no trouble believing that that is a true statistic. Because when I, when I read that statement, I don't, see numbers in my mind. I see the faces of so many kids of all ages up into their 30s and 40s who, whose eyes take on that glaze of memory of when their world fell apart when mom and dad parted and the family fell apart. And uh, again, I don't say that to condemn or hurt people who have divorced. But I'll tell you, if your divorce was motivated by selfishness, then you need to feel the pain of it so you can repent of it, so you can repair the damage. And it's never too late to repair the damage with your children if you're honest and truthful and humble. That's one thing about these kids. I'm telling they do long for reality and they do have a, a desire for honesty and truth. They want honesty and truth and reality a lot more than they want doctrinal statements. But that's another subject. Anyway, what I want us to understand here is I spent the whole hour last time together wrestling through the legalism and self-righteousness. We, we, you know, we talked about that. 
I spent the whole time together rebuking uh, the lack of love and uh, mercy and empathy for suffering people that has been so often demonstrated in and by the body of Christ. Uh, I didn't quote a lot of stats because I don't I don't believe that that's the that the lack of love I was seeking to expose is happening everywhere. I don't think it's statistically measurable. There are bodies of believers around the country that, and around the world who are laying down their lives for the poor, the sick, the orphan, the politically disenfranchised, the slave trade, AIDS sufferers, those caught in the middle of evil governments who use their suffering people as pawns for their games. There's Christians building hospitals and orphanages and digging wells and making safe houses for abused women and children. All kinds of aid pours into the world from the hands of faithful believers who either go themselves or who support those who do with their funds, their gifts, their intercession. On the local level, small church gatherings of every stripe are involved in all kinds of rescue work, ministry work, providing food and clothing and shelter to the indigent, uh, ministering, counseling, serving people in ways that uh, a lot of people don't ever know. And uh, they serve people that never will darken their door or become a, a member of their church. They don't serve them to increase their membership. They serve because they love people, because they love Jesus, and they love what Jesus loves, and Jesus loves people. I said in, in, in this hour, we would seek to discern what we can do to accomplish the opposite of what we talked about in our last hour. I don't want to insult you with obvious things you know well. You don't need my input. Don't be unloving and rude, and especially do it in the name of the Lord. I always think about a guy I knew years ago. His 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 ministry was to walk into stop-and-go stores and uh, uh, pull out uh, uh, porn magazines from the rack, flop them out in front of the poor, overworked uh, clerk, and make a big scene as if it, it was her fault that the store manager or the store owner had chosen to use uh, his store to propagate this merchandise. Most of the time, uh, it was not the owner standing behind the, the you know, the counter. Uh, he'd rant and rave about the evil the store was propagating. He thought he was being a prophet of righteousness when all he really was doing was embarrassing a poor, tired store clerk who was just trying to serve her employer and make a meager living. She wasn't responsible for what the owner stocked in the store. And, and to say that she shouldn't work there because of what they sold is the height of the sort of self-righteous hypocrisy we spent all our time addressing last time. I mean, you know, go pay her bills for her if you want to be that harsh with her about where she works. We all know that. You don't need me to tell you that. And we spent an hour on it last time. I believe we should all know what to do, not just what to not do, but we all sh we, we should all know what to do. Find ways to love and serve and comfort and be Jesus to whomever we can, beginning with our family, then our neighbors, then whoever God brings across our path. If we are unable to venture too far out due to lack of health or lack of resources, then pray. It only shows how far from truth and reality we've drifted. 
if we become people who say, well, I can only pray, I guess. Prayer is the exercising of the priestly authority of Christ in the earth. Psalm 110, God extends the rod of his power through his praying church. I believe we know all these things. If you need some help on that, please get our 12-hour study in our tape, in our uh, CD library called, uh, I think it's just called the prayer series. It'll help you understand. Because I've said this before, and it's an aside, but I want to mention it. Most people don't pray because they really think, why pray? I mean, God already knows what he's going to do. He's already decided. No, he hadn't decided. That, that's a misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God. Uh, you need to, you, you pray, you extend the rod of God's authority in prayer. Second Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for a man or woman through whom God can show himself strong. Isaiah says, there is none who calls on your name. There's none who stirs up himself to take hold of thee. And therefore we are, we are in the mess we're in. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. I mean, I could quote scripture after scripture. God, it is, it is right to say in some ways, with all due respect to God's sovereignty, who can, he can do whatever he wants, but God will not move in the earth unless his people ask him to. That doesn't mean God is limited to your prayers, but he has limited himself by his own word. Or either that or those scriptures are meaningless. Anyway, so what can we specifically do? Well, the first thing I think we need to do, in my opinion, for whatever it's worth, is stop where you are and take ex- take make an examination of your own heart. Isaiah one eighteen, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Second Chronicles or Second Corinthians thirteen five. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Now, don't examine yourselves on your own. Examine yourselves with the Lord. And ask him to show you. Ask him to search your heart and to make a thorough examination of there, if there's any leaven of self-righteousness in you. Be sure as possible that your own hearts are free from self-righteousness. We should do this as much as we can. Ask the Holy Spirit to make an inventory. Search out the leaven. Clean it out. I'll tell you, he will answer that prayer faster than you can blink. He longs to respond to that kind of soul searching. Please do not proceed to the next section of what we're going to talk about until you've stopped and done just that. Just turn turn the recording off and, and do that first. Here's why. If you don't, if you enter into the next section of what I want to talk about here without doing this first, you could end up becoming the very opposite of what this examination seeks to produce. Instead of us becoming more Christ-like and loving to the world around us, we will for sure become the very self-righteous prigs that the devil would like us to be. After you've prayed through all this, then come back and uh, hopefully digest the next thing that we need to do. So what is that next thing? In my humble opinion, it is we've got to grow up. We've got to become mature people. The symptoms that I've been describing in this 
generation of young people, 40 and younger, are the symptoms of orphans. They are an abandoned, parentless generation. There's no revelation to that. We know all that. We've heard it over and over. Let's try to examine what that means for us. Now, you may not be tracking with me in some of this as deeply as I am assuming you are because you may not have read Unchristian or other material like it, which I have referred to several times so far. I hope you will read it, even if such studies are not your cup of tea, because they have important concerns in in these studies, and we do need to become more and more sensitive to some of these concerns. For instance, all the research that I've studied and my own personal experience supports the fact that the large majority of the truly Bible-believing white church still has a deeply self-righteous and therefore unchristlike disdain for people with various forms of sexual brokenness and also uh, for racism. You can name these sexual areas yourself without me listing them. I believe that Fear is rooted in the immaturity, to some degree, that is also rooted in dishonesty about people's own private, undealt-with sexual struggles. The church is filled with people who haven't dealt with their own stuff, and they cover it up with religiosity and self-righteousness. And uh, all the statistics that I've studied, as well as my experience and the experiences of other people who do the kind of work that Mary and I do, affirm this fact. And pastors are just eaten up with self-deception uh, and denial about these issues until it crashes in on them, and then they want to, you know, they want to, it's like everybody starts drowning, and they all want somebody to come in and teach everybody how to swim. I have no stats for this, but I do have a lot of experience. And then the other area I've mentioned is the painfully lacking in love regarding racism. Now, you may be surprised that I would say that, but no matter how much some may want to tout the progress of race relations and point to the rise in black affluence as proof, as if that all that was needed to heal generations of horrible injustice was for blacks to move on up to the east side with the Jeffersons. The fact is, racism is alive, and it is alive in the hearts of many white, professing Bible believers. Anecdotal examples are often given to me of why they still don't like black people. But in every case they offer, I can point uh, with equal... to with equal authority to white people's behavior in their circle of, in, of, of relation that, that is just as bad as some black people they point out. And in some cases, the white people's behavior is even worse. Yet they do not feel the same towards all whites based on those facts. Racism is a heart issue and must be dealt with before the cross. Sexual self-righteousness is the same. So it's right for us to face these issues, and reading unchristian is a good start. We need to take on much of what the authors have to say. Much, but not all. There were moments in reading unchristian and uh, some other material like it. Uh, I felt my insides closing off. For instance, at one point, one of the authors stated that the high number of outsiders, that's what they call non-believers, the high number of outsiders who truly don't like Christians 
uh, he states the statistics supporting that. Now, I believe the number that he states is too high and that their conclusions are off. But anyway, he said how he felt uh, sitting in a Starbucks and realizing based on that research that if he were to be known suddenly to all the people in the Starbucks as a Christian, that it made him very uncomfortable. It was unnerving to realize nearly everyone would despise him because he was a Christian. Now, this is the very kind of wrong thinking that results from wrong statistical analysis. I would never think in those terms. I think in terms of the one who lives in me and of my heart desire to love and serve every person in the room. If they didn't like me because I was a Christian, I would rejoice in the opportunity to put right their wrong assumptions, not by argument, but by asking what it was they hate and and why, and offering an alternative perspective. I would pray that my own behavior and conversation would flesh out for them a living proof that there are some Christians that would not treat them with disrespect or in an unloving manner or try to shove a, a track down their throat or invite them to a Bible study so they could up their number at the, you know, on the church roster. But, but here's the clincher. I would not bend over backward to be liked if being liked meant I must be silent on issues of truth. Now, for instance, if someone said to, that he hates Christians because of old Fred Phelps, that counterfeit Christian in Kansas, that false pr- preacher uh, who's a servant of hell, who loves to parade around with signs all over the place that say things like God hates fags and go to the funerals of homosexuals in order to increase the suffering of the already grieving parents. I would welcome the chance to clarify things in the mind of such a person. But if they then assumed that because I reject Phelps, that that means I am affirming of homosexual sin, I would be just as welcoming of the opportunity to clarify that, too. It can be done in a respectful, loving, humble way, but it must be said, or I'm betraying the cross by my friendly silence. We certainly betray the cross if we acquiesce to the mindset of the world, which longs for all boundaries to be removed so that they can have all they want of whatever they want on their own selfish terms. Certainly Christians can be hated for being hateful, like Phelps, who I doubt is even a, a, a believer. I mean, he's, he's a, I don't know what he is. We can be hated because we are indifferent to suffering while claiming to be Christ's hand extended. We can be hated because we make really cheesy religious movies that embarrass anyone who sees them. We can be hated because we are purposefully negative about everything and everyone. Who doesn't smell like us, look like us, act like us? We can be hated for lots of reasons. But you know what? We can also be hated because we refuse to embrace evil. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 that in the end of the age, we will be hated because we are not evil. Kids tell me often that in their schools, they will be persecuted if they don't speak evil, act rebellious, and make poor grades. They'll be hated because they're not stupid, not evil, not not rebellious. I described in our last hour how God broke my heart when a young man plagued with homosexual desires approached me fearing my wrath because he assumed my attitude toward counterfeit bishops 
who were affirming immoral lifestyles in the name of mercy and grace was going to be the same attitude that I expressed toward him. My tears over him helped bring us together. But what if he would have said to me, as others have said to me before, okay, so you're not so bad as the rest of those mean-spirited Christians. So now prove it. If you're not a hater, then you must love everything we love and even participate in whatever we do. What would I do then? Do we fall over and act like little boys and girls in middle school who are so afraid of being rejected by the popular crowd that we'll do anything to be accepted? Now, can you imagine the early church reading the statistical analysis of the Roman philosophers who popularized the lies that the early church uh, was cannibalistic, atheistic, and sexually perverted? Because that's what they said about them. Um, That's exactly the charge that was levied against the church. They were cannibals because they ate the Lord's flesh and drank his blood at the Lord's table. Atheists because they rejected the Roman gods and sexual perverts. Can can you imagine the Romans calling anybody a sexual pervert? But uh, they said that the Christians were sexual perverts because they, quote, loved one another fervently. I can't see these early believers trying to be more Roman to suit the Romans, nor did they appeal to the government for protection, nor did they march and picket for equal rights. What they did was stay behind when the plague broke out, and while the rest of Rome fled, the Christians nursed the dying and buried their dead and loved them with action and not just words. We've got to grow up. We must be parents and grandparents and leaders. We must behave in a way that affirms love while still rebuking evil. That cannot be grasped in a paragraph at the end of an hour's message. It must be prayed through, then lived out every moment of the rest of our lives. But if we will love maturely and hate evil, because the Bible says to love God is also to hate evil, We will provide a resting place from the storm and a covering from the heat for a generation of 40 and under who have been seduced and confused and disappointed by Americanistic Christianity that has not been real. Did you ever read or see H.G. Wells' The Time Machine? Wells goes hundreds of years into the future in his time machine, which is populated by two races, the Eloi, live above the ground. They are perpetually young and live for entertainment and food and pleasure. It it all seems idyllic. But the reason they're all young is they never live long enough to grow older or wiser. They're passively grazing and mindless in submission in order to be food for the underground monsters called the Morlocks. The Morlocks eat the Eloi. It's funny that in all his utopian self-deception, Wells still saw the grave danger of such passivity, and in his story he becomes the mature man, the one who steps in to break the system and save the Eloi from the Morlocks, but it meant that all their utopian provisions provided by the Morlocks would be lost, and the Eloi would then have to start growing up and taking responsibility for themselves. We have a much wiser invader than H.G. Wells. The Lord Jesus Christ has come and then he sent his spirit to live in us and to bring us into truth which brings us into maturity. And that maturity is measured by love and truth. 
We must choose to be men and women of God who live in opposition to the Eloi world for the sake of the Eloi. We must care enough about the truth to disregard the accusations that we're being judgmental. And we must stand in love and speak this truth and live this truth in such a way that our words regain power to persuade. Because these kids are watching to see what's real. I told you a while ago, they're not nearly so concerned about doctrinal truth. I know that may upset some of you. Doctrinal truth is important. I talked about that in the hour previous to this one. I know doctrinal truth is important, but they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. I know that's a cliche, but it's time that we start making it more than a cliche. Loving people enough to speak the truth to them means you gain a platform for them to hear you, not by your mouth moving, but by your heart actions. God helping us. We can starve the Morlocks and see the Eloi come into their own adulthood in Christ.